Welcome to the Nerd Review. This is the show where we talk about movies, TV shows, video games, books, and comic books. Today you are listening to Season 2, Episode 20. We are doing the Nerd Review of Maximum Overdrive. So let's jump into that now. Classic films. And few are uniquely as bizarre and entertaining as Maximum Overdrive, a 1986 science fiction action horror movie written and directed by none other than Stephen King himself. In his own words from an incredibly cringeworthy commercial from the 80s, he states that, quote, if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself, end quote. And even in this ad, you can see just how goddamn coked out of his mind he actually is. And we will definitely talk about that and so much more, but I'm already getting ahead of myself in this episode. Let's talk about Stephen King and his impact on film and literature and pop culture over the last almost 50 years. So let's talk about all that now. Now Stephen King's foray into the director's chair resulted in a chaotic and memorable ride that has left an indelible mark on the world of cult cinema. With its maniacal machines, dark humor, and over-the-top action, Maximum Overdrive is a film that thrills and baffles audiences, making it a true gem of the 1980s. Now before we jump into the movie itself let's take a minute and talk a bit about Stephen King and why I decided to talk about Maximum Overdrive why I was so excited to watch this movie out of all of the critically acclaimed adaptations from Stephen King and the answer is because it's the only movie that he Stephen King wrote and directed which in my humble nerd opinion King's status as such an influential individual in both literature and film makes it kind of the ultimate Stephen King movie in that even though it may not be the best motion picture of all times, arguably it's the most accurate creation of Stephen King's vision for one of his books. As the director of the film, he was ultimately responsible for bringing the story off the page. And if I was gonna talk about Stephen King, this seemed like the best one, and it really fit into the motif of the podcast. Uh, so that was that was kind of my reasoning behind it. And when I when I saw the the trailer and the poster for Maximum Overdrive, I was so excited to sit down and watch this movie. So Stephen King, who is often referred to as the master of horror, has had a prolific impact on both the worlds of literature and film. That is nothing short of legendary. With over 350 million copies of his books sold and dozens of film and television adaptations. King's influence on horror genre and storytelling is, it just in general, is immeasurable. Now, Stephen King's career as a writer began in the early 1970s, and he quickly, quickly, quickly <laughs> established himself as a prolific uh, and innovative voice in the world of horror literature. His debut novel, Carrie, from 1974, for a perspective that's 20 years before this bo th this nerd was even born. 20 years before I was born, right? Now, Carrie, which will actually celebrate its 50th anniversary next year, so if you were attending the Carrie prom, you'd be about 70 years old right now, and that's, that's wild. And Carrie was a runaway success, and it paved the way for a series of novels that would redefine the horror genre. 
and Stephen King's ability to tap into universal fears and anxieties, combined with his gifts for creating relatable characters and intricate plots, set a new standard for horror fiction that readers everywhere couldn't get enough of. And many of those readers remarked that one of Stephen King's most remark they rem they remarked that his most remarkable contributions. Uh, I needed to bust out my thesaurus for that one. I, I should have uh, you need better words here. Uh, his biggest contributions to literature is his exploration of the ordinary turned extraordinary. Extraordinary. I find it very. Here's a little tidbit I always find funny that extraordinary is actually just extraordinary. That the two root words are the exact opposite of what the word's definition is. I, I just always found that amusing. So uh, he he often sets his stories in these small, seemingly idyllic uh, idyllic towns uh, where supernatural and terrifying events occur. Works like The Shining, 1977. It, 1986, and Misery, 1987, delve into the dark corners of human psychology whilst keeping readers on the edge of their seats. And by 1990, there was both the miniseries for It and the adaptation of Misery that earned Kathy Bates an Academy Award for her chilling portrayal of Annie Wilkes. Now, talking about It, this introduced an entire new generation to Derry, Maine, and the horrors there within. And then when we count the 2017 and 2019, 19 film adaptations of the it novel this introduced again another new generation and this is one of the things that i think is amazing i got to experience both of these versions of this classic iconic horror story uh, told in two different formats in two different time periods that really encapsulate what horror was at those times and I think that is very interesting and one of the cool things about Stephen King now 50 years into his career and and just so many prolific and iconic characters and and horror stories it's very interesting uh, I mean the list of successful adaptation just goes on and on illustrating like I said this prolific impact on the cinematic world and and of course the the the, the written word the, uh, the literature of course and I've seen all of these movies plus so many more Stephen King movies like I said some of them I didn't even know were Stephen King adaptations Stand By Me 1986 is based on one of Stephen King's novellas titled The Body and of course this became you know a uh, beloved coming of age film um, and like I said I, I remember so many of the other ones too and I remember the original it and I still avoid storm drains on rainy days to this day and these are just a handful of the wide, uh, widely popular Stephen King films and and so this kind of also played into why I decided to go with maximum overdrive there are so many like acclaimed ones and this one it is written and directed by Stephen King and it's not acclaimed. It's it's infamous instead of famous. And beyond the world of literature and film, Stephen King's impact extends into the world of television. As with the miniseries for It, his work has been adapted into more than 60 TV series with varying degrees of success. Uh, some of these adaptations have, like I said, become iconic in their own right. And perhaps one of the most celebrated of these adaptations 
nominations is the Stanley Kubrick 1980 film, you guessed it, The Shining, uh, which remains a benchmark for psychological horror in cinema, and Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Jack Torrance and the film's haunting imagery have left an indelible mark on the horror genre. And that said, the film adaptation of The Shining, and again, this is in my humble nerd opinion, is more, I believe, is more highly regarded as a Stanley Kubrick film and less for being an actually good movie. And, and this might be a hot take, but this is simply my honest nerd opinion. There is a ton of great cinematography and the symbolism is great. You know, I even saw a post about how the tie that Jack Nicholson is wearing, uh, if you zoom in on it, it actually has the shape and the pattern of the maze. Spoilers, the, I mean, this came out years ago. Um, and, and so the symbolism is great, sure. But the plot and the sequences of the film, specifically the film, not the book, the film, boils down to a guy that drags his family to some remote resort shirks all of his actual work responsibilities at said resort on his wife and then proceeds to go crazy from writer's block slash ghosts and then this culminates in him trying to kill his family uh yeah that dude sucks now i know uh in the book like i said this is a hot take i know uh i know in the book the jack character is more nuanced and his descent into madness is more documented however this is not the case with the film and apart from all the stylistic stuff and the directing and some you know great you know performances from the thespians i was left wholly underwhelmed after watching the shining um and again that's just my humble nerd opinion about one of you know stephen king's film adaptation and and honestly the majority of the others i've, I've enjoyed immensely uh so I, I just needed to put in my hot take there so you know, let's continue Another of uh, Stephen King's unique strengths uh, that a lot of people have documented and remarked on is his versatility. While he's best known for, obviously, his horror works in Carrie and It and all of these other movies, he has uh, ventured into various other genres, including fantasy, science fiction, and even drama. His epic fantasy series, The Dark Tower, spans eight novels and is often regarded as his magnum opus. The series weaves together elements of Western, fantasy, horror, uh, ultimately showcasing his ability to transcend these genre barriers. And this impact of his, not only does it extend to the genres and the mediums from film to TV, from book to play to, you know, screenplay, all of these things, um, his storytelling techniques, character development, and ability to tap into the human psyche have inspired countless other authors and filmmakers uh his own son writer uh, is a writer joe hill uh he's followed in his in his, his father's footsteps creating their own brand of horror fiction uh filmmakers like guillermo del toro and james wan have also cited uh, stephen king as a major influence on their work and stephen king's prolific impact on books and film i believe is a testament to his enduring creativity and storytelling prowess his ability 
to terrify and captivate audiences, to invoke fear from the ordinary, and to create memorable characters has absolutely solidified his place as a literary and cinematic legend. Whether through spine-tingling novels or chilling on-screen adaptations, uh, Stephen King's legacy continues to haunt and thrill audiences around the world, and I truly think it's amazing that we can enjoy and celebrate creative works that are over 50 years old, uh, thus Stephen King's influence will continue for generations to come. And what a better way to celebrate that legacy than to discuss the one and only film that Stephen King wrote both the novella and screenplay for, and directed the movie. So with no further delays, let's dive into this episode's feature film, Maximum Overdrive. The movie opens with a sinister yet seemingly innocuous event. Earth passes through the tail of a rogue comet, and the immediate consequence is a global phenomenon where machines of all kinds, from electronic devices to vehicles, suddenly spring to life with a malevolent intent to harm humans. Chaos ensues as humanity is thrust into a fight for survival against its own creations. Doesn't that sound amazing? Now, the film primarily revolves around the lives of a group of survivors who find themselves trapped at a truck stop in North Carolina. Emilio Estevez plays Bill Robinson, the ex-con hero of the story, who must lead this ragtag group against the relentless onslaught of killer machines. The ensemble cast includes some really memorable characters like the young Yardley Smith, three years before she would forever be known as the voice of Lisa Simpson, and Pat Hingle as Hendershot, the belligerent shotgun-wielding owner of the truck stop who calls everyone Bubba. However, the true stars of Maximum Overdrive are clearly the homicidal machines themselves. From the soda vending machine launching cans like projectiles to lawnmowers mowing down anyone in their path, King's vision of mechanized malevolence is both absurd and oddly terrifying. The most iconic character of the movie, however, is the green-eyed, menacing big rig, big rig, I said that, yeah, that was loud, big rig, known as the Happy Toys Truck, which is adorned with an unsettlingly large hood ornament of the Green Goblin's mask. Uh, this truck becomes the film's main antagonist as it just relentlessly pursues the survivors. A lot of air horns brr, brr, in this movie. There was a lot of great action sequences actually in the movie uh, as the machines be begin to come to life. Uh, it, it really does seem to be completely random, by the way. Like the machines that come to life, it's not just all of them. Uh, it's Some come to life and others just don't. Uh, I'll talk about more about that in a bit. So I'll, first I want to talk about my favorite scenes, uh, including the very first scene, which is on a drawbridge uh, and the bridge becomes self-aware before the cars do and it begins to raise the bridge while people are crossing it and the cars are flipping over and they're sliding backwards and people are trying to like you know use their brakes and try to get over the gap or reverse down before it gets to like a 90 degree angle cars start like flipping back over each other and people are jumping off the bridge this was all very well done 
Uh, next, there was a kids' baseball game. Again, this, all um, some of my favorite scenes are honestly, as I'm recalling them, all at the beginning of the movie. Kind of like just setting the stage for the movie, and then it kind of went downhill from there. There, there is a kids' baseball game that gets interrupted when that vending machine from hell starts rocketing soda cans at people, killing the coach with a soda can to the head. Very well done, too. Uh, good 80s practical effects. Like it's supposed to be a horror movie, so the guy got brained by a can and it like you know you can see red it's supposed to be like his skull is exposed now uh during this scene uh, an unmanned steamroller breaks through the park fence and rampages across the baseball players according to crew interviews while shooting this scene uh stephen king requested that the sfx department place a bag of fake blood near the dummy of the young player who would be run over by it the desired effect would be that a smear of blood would appear on the steamroller and be re-smeared on the grass over and over like a printing press now while filming the scene however the bag of blood exploded too soon and sprayed everywhere making it appear as if the boy's head had also exploded uh king was thrilled with this result but censors demanded that the shot be cut however the steamroller still flattens that kid just without the spectacular explosion of blood there was also a lot of dumb character stuff that i just couldn't help but enjoy and just at the absurdity and how stupid and, and to be honest how poorly written it was there is a character named wanda june and i put uh, a scene actually this scene specifically on my tiktok and i, I think i posted it on most of the socials for the nerd review so wanda june who was played by ellen mcduffel uh she kept annoyingly sobbing about how can they do this and questioning why machines would kill people and insisting that they couldn't do this because we made them and don't they have any loyalty and this culminates in her running out from safety and being gunned down while addressing these questions directly to the homicidal machines and then poetically being just completely gunned down in the best 80s movie style ever with tons of blood and an unnecessary explosion because oh yeah she was carrying a grenade launcher and and that brings me to my biggest gripe with this movie uh, the premise is fairly straightforward a comet makes machines sentient and they want to kill humans and take over the world okay simple yet the movie also has a very random way of picking and choosing which machines came to life and which didn't case in point the grenade launcher that wanda june uses never tried to blow her up but the machine gun woke up and started firing at everyone on two legs so like another example is that yurgley smith and john short they played connie and kurt the newlyweds uh, they spend half the like the first half of the movie trying to escape killer cars and trucks while driving away from the bad trucks and cars in their own car and th that car never comes to life it just drives them like it just drives them around never drives them into a wall or off the road or into a lake nope just you know this one car seems perfectly happy with the occupants apparently which was i just i found that funny um now once the newly reds the newly reds arrive at the dixie boy truck stop uh where the rest of the cast was working uh when the, you know when all the machines began waking up now the 
the standoff between the humans and the machine really gets going and we're about like the 45 minute marker on like a movie that's an hour and a half so there's about 45 minutes left uh and it kind of just peters out at this point they're stuck inside the trucks are driving around in circles running over anyone who dares make a break for it uh and and we get a few more uh pretty cool uh, explosions using the grenade launchers uh the trucks have to kind of like start communicating they use morse code at one point to be like like we need gas and they try to work out like oh we'll let you live as slaves if you give us gas and that doesn't really last very long uh, and oh there's a funny bit of trivia about this dixie boy truck stop the set was constructed 10 miles outside of william william wilmington North Carolina, I believe I pronounced that correctly. Uh, it was convincing enough that several truckers uh, tried to stop in and eventually the producers had to put an announcement in the local uh, papers because that's what they had at the time, uh, was that the Dixie Boy was just a movie set. And I'm just thinking how much uh, of a hectic set for security. You have big rigs pulling in and out and having to figure out which ones were part of production and, and which ones were just confused truckers looking for gas uh, and like a bite to eat. That must have been uh, very, very stressful at times. And like you have these giant machines and trucks coming in and then like having to direct them back out and I could I couldn't think of the logistics that would be involved there. That's very funny. I found that very funny. Uh, now, once uh, so yeah, once everyone has gathered at the Dixie Boy, um, that's where you know like a few of the standoffs happen, uh, and we find out that the owner of the Dixie Boy, Hendershot, is actually an arms dealer, and he has an arsenal of weapons in the basement, and that's where the grenade launcher enters the picture, and allowing Wanda June to operate one of those things was clearly a bad idea. Now, uh, a few days of stalemate, and the remaining inhabitants of the truck stop come up with a plan to escape the machines to a small island off the coast that has no buildings or machinery of any kind, but uh, first they have to escape the happy toy nightmare of a truck and then avoid being detected by any other machines on their way to the docks uh, a feat which even in the 80s had already become nearly impossible to achieve because this reliance on machines had already become so widespread that practically every street had the eyes of a deadly machine watching for humans. And this is one of the elements of the movies that I really enjoyed, though uh, probably more for the comedic aspect of the idea that this, this idea that relying on machines was inherently dangerous. And everyone in the film kept using this current situation as justification for being a Luddite. It's as if all of these folk were just waiting for the day when their automatic kitchen knife was going to go homicidal on them and they were, you know, wasting no time on the griping. Like, I knew these machines would be the death of us. Like, like really? Did you, did you really know that this was going to happen? Specifically this? A comet would pass over the Earth and the green Aurora Borealis shit would cause machines to go nuts? Like, did you really know that? I found, I found this absolutely hilarious. And every time they would gripe or lament about this, I would laugh so hard. Just pure, unintentional, comedic gold absolutely hilarious and and of course the core group of protagonists yardley smith emilio estevez uh john start john short john short uh they, they make it to the boat and they set off to the island 
And, you know, as the newspaper reports predicted, the Earth would only be in the comet's tail for a little over a week. And so they, they sail, literally sail off into the sunset and roll credits. We get the end. You know, they, they survived the mechanical uprising. And there's a bunch of, like, gripes and plot holes, like the the boat that they were using was like it's not a dinghy like a rowboat it was a pretty big ship so like it would have an engine so it would be a machine so again why would it let them do that it just goes back to the whole which machines come to life and which machines don't is very haphazardly applied to the machines of the movie and it's basically just plot force you know they need to get from a to b and they need to do this so let's put them on this big boat when arguably they should have been on like a canoe or something <laughs> and that wraps up the plot and the synopsis of the movie so now let's talk more about stephen king's unique directorial style i, I hinted at this earlier on uh, maximum overdrive was stephen king's directorial debut debut <laughs> debut and his influence is evident throughout the film his storytelling style you know characterized by a mix of horror and dark humor is front and center the movie doesn't take itself too seriously and the absurdity of the premise is played up for laughs as well as chills now king's love for the macabre and his knack for crafting memorable characters it kind of doesn't really shine through as much uh, as you would have hoped through the midst of the chaos as it does with some of his other characters. There was some inward looking character driven perspective moments that kind of fall flat. Um, I don't know if it's an underwhelming performance from Emilio Estevez or the shrieking of, uh, of a young Yardley Smith, but there was just something that didn't quite add up with the cast. Uh, actually, and speaking of cast, Stephen King uh, has a cameo appearance in the movie, which is a fun Easter egg for fans. As the machines become self-aware, that one of the first ones actually is an ATM and installs, it starts calling a customer an asshole over and over and over again. And said asshole at the beginning of the movie was Stephen King in a trench coat coat and a little uh, business hat and um, actually I have more about King's directing in the trivia part of the episode actually because most of it comes from interviews and general IMDB trivia uh, so it may not be 100% accurate take it with a, a grain of salt uh, but more of that to come in a moment because it's part of the trivia it's, it's, it's too funny to do it in, in not the trivia part because I'm going to start laughing so well, we're going to take a break from Stephen King's directing for just a small moment. So first we, we we shall talk about the film's reception and legacy, and then we'll get to trivia and we'll circle back around to his uh, directing style. So upon its release, Maximum Overdrive received mixed reviews from critics, to say the least. Many praised its over-the-top action and humor, while others found fault in its somewhat cheesy execution. The film currently has an abysmal critic score of 15%, with some critics saying it was, quote, a mess of a movie and others saying that the movie had nothing unexpected or jarring jolts of horror now even though the audience score is more favorable it is only at 50% score and the majority of the positive views again are praising the practical effects and explosions and lamenting about literally everything else in this movie from the directing style to the characters and the lack of you know like a fleshed out story 
Even in the years following the release, when asked about the movie, Stephen King himself described it as, quote, a moron movie, and that he enjoyed the learning experience of directing and vowed never to return to the director's chair. So I guess he took something away from the learning experience. Now, the film's box office performance was modest. On a budget of $9 million, uh, the movie struggled to make gains at the box office. In the face of such lamenting reviews and stiff competition at the box office, box office box office with movies like top gun aliens the sequel and ferris bueller's day off maximum overdrive was a bust and the box office limped to a dismal seven million dollars worldwide so they lost money on that movie quite a bit of money uh and clearly it was not a critically acclaimed stephen king adaptation which only really sets the stage for the movie to be truly cemented as a cult cult classic cult classic a cult classic from its sheer audacity and willingness to embrace its own absurdity to reveling in its chaotic premise taking audiences on a wild ride filled with explosions explosions machine mayhem and dark humor while it may not be a cinematic masterpiece in the traditional sense it has earned a special place in the hearts of those who appreciate its unapologetic offbeat charm and the more diehard stephen king fans myself included because i gave it like a you know, good rounded three and a half out of five stars. Um, you, you know, I might not have been laughing or enjoying the movie the way it was intended as a serious horror, you know, action film, but as a comedic horror, cheesy film absurdity, it got really good reviews from me, that's for sure. And over the years, uh, Maximum Overdrive has carved out its own niche in the realm of cult cinema, thanks in no small part to its those memorable characters or immemorable, immemorable, non-memorable characters. It's Emilio Estevez, you know, like you're going to remember that. Uh, the electrifying soundtrack of ACDC, which uh, they agreed to do because Stephen King asked them directly because he's just a big fan. Uh, and, and just that, that distinctive stephen king directorial touch it's and I'm, I'm, I'm i haven't forgotten about it we're going to talk about it don't worry uh, it's a film that leaves audiences both entertained and bewildered so whether you're in it for the thrill of maniacal machines or the allure of a good old-fashioned 80s horror romp maximum overdrive is a much watch for those seeking a unique cinematic experience and now, all that's left is the crazy and amazing trivia about the making and behind the scenes of Maximum Overdrive. Now, like I said before, some of this comes from IMDb and others come from cast interviews and articles written about the production that you know I came across during my research. How much of it is true or accurate is really anyone's guess. So in my opinion, in my humble nerd opinion, and how I conduct my research is that I simply try to verify through at least one first-hand source. So that's from a cast or a crew interview, uh, I'll do a quick Google search for, you know, the claim or the trivia factoid posted on IMDb, and I stick with the most verifiable ones, and I avoid the more urban legend sounding ones. Uh, so that's that's just kind of how I piece together this fun trivia section. And, and there's some fun trivia that is also directly uh, correlates with 
the directing styles of Stephen King. So let's let's jump into that now. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I I alluded to it and uh, in that ad for Maximum Overdrive. And as many fans are aware, the late 80s was the height of Stephen King's addiction and alcoholism. According to many sources, and I believe Stephen King himself, uh, he has stated that he was high on cocaine during much of the production of Maximum Overdrive, and the production worked uh, many erratic hours and could involve follow the schedule very well as a result of this. Uh, according to Yardley Smith, during some interviews, uh, it didn't matter what time they were starting to film, even if it was a later night shot or an early day shot, the beers came out at 5pm and it just kept flowing until the end of the shot. So between the alcoholism and the cocaine i could just assume that you know this was going to be a, a very erratic very up and down kind of production though uh from what i've read yardley smith remembers stephen king as being only very happy and and very kind and i mean that makes sense because he was very high from what it sounds like uh and you know some some of these things can't be 100 percent verified um but it it does it's as verified as i could verified at least one person that was actually working on the set part of the production has said this in an interview in an article yada 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 so uh i did think this one was interesting uh it's not it's it's so this is the caveat to the rule there's always an exception to the rule i said all of that and then i'm going to start with the very first one that's not verifiable because that's what we do uh it it's very interesting though it's been long rumored that because of stephen king's addiction and alcoholism that george a romero actually ghost directed a large portion of this film while uh, Stephen King was seeking treatment for that said cocaine addiction. Many fans of Romero's work have noted that the film features many of Romero's distinct camera angles and editing choices. Uh, while Stephen King has never admitted this up front, he has mentioned that George Romero was constantly on the set and King would frequently ask him for advice about directing. So there could be, you know, two explanations there that he was seeking advice advice and you know he took his advice on the angle on the edit or that while Stephen King was recovering from his addiction or you know his drug use that somebody else was actually directing the film uh, so yeah this was the only one that was a little bit unverifiable that's a lie there's a second one it's more towards the end of my list here of, of uh, trivia factoids so uh, that was interesting I just thought that was interesting having a ghost director and that you know because of his his issues at the time somebody else actually directed this movie now speaking like i was saying speaking to his directorial style he was a bit of a perfectionist in the sense that he wanted it to be done the way he wanted it and this led to some serious risk-taking and inevitably an accident that took place that seriously injured somebody. So one of the crazier things that happened on that set occurred July 31st, 1985, while shooting in the suburb of Wilmington, Wilmington, North Carolina. I cannot pronounce that. There's a lot of L's, M, I, G, on, T. There was a radio-controlled lawnmower. And this was to be used in the scene. Uh, in early, very early on in the movie, the lawnmower you know, goes after somebody. And before filming, there were concerns about the blades being left in the lawnmower. According to the camera assistant, Sylvia Giulietti, 
I'm sorry, I can't pronounce last names. There's a lot of letters here. They're, they're rep the repeating syllables gets me all tongue twisted. Um, so Sylvia and the special effects department, they had suggested removing the blades for safety reasons. However, Stephen King wanted the blades in. And he is quoted to have been saying that he likes to see them, even though the director of photography, Armando Nanuzzi, pointed out that the blades aren't visible in the shot, Stephen King continued to insist that it remain so that the seed could appear, quote, more lifelike. Now, while filming the scene, the lawnmower uh, used went out of control and struck a block of wood that was being used as a camera support, shooting out wood splinters, which injured the director of photography, Armando, as a result, and he lost his right eye, also his film shooting eye. Armando sued Stephen King and De Laurentiis Productions and 16 other individuals who were involved in filming on that day. In February, uh, the lawsuit was uh, registered February 18th, uh, 1987, for $18 million in damages as he believed he would never again be considered for big budget projects as producers wouldn't want a cameraman with no depth perception after he lost his shooting eye, which was just like, absolutely crazy to think about that somebody could you know lose their eye while filming like a movie you think there's supposed to be these safety procedures and and precautions being taken but at the time in the 80s it was really kind of like just the wild west on what they were doing on set and what they could get away with ultimately the suit was settled out of court and this wouldn't be the only accident on set while filming another scene where an ice cream truck is supposed to flip over the stunt didn't go according to plan as a telephone pole sized beam of wood had been placed inside the truck so that it would flip end over end but instead the truck only flipped once and landed on its roof and began to slide directly towards the camera a dolly grip on the film pulled the cameraman out of the way at the very last second avoiding another potentially deadly accident from occurring another accident so there was another accident that could have potentially happened i should say so one accident actually did happen and two potentially deadly accidents could have occurred throughout the production of maximum overdrive and and i'm saying two because these are the only ones that people have actually talked about but i assume there could have been countless more um because it was just a, like I, it was a deadly combination of clearly a director high on coke taking unnecessary risks and an industry lacking regulations the 80s was a powder keg ready to explode something even yardley smith recalled while talking about uh, filming the movie in an interview with yahoo news and just oh god who remembers yahoo news that's a blast from the past uh right so a yardley smith who was 22 at the time and is greatly embarrassed by this film and considering that all she does is scream in a poor texas accent and just like screaming bloody murder in like almost every one of her scenes I i'm not shocked that she's embarrassed though though that said and jokes aside watching these interviews i found out that she did her own stunts which is pretty surprising uh considering that she had no training and that there was no safety precautions which amounted to her standing in front of the Dixie Boy window from the inside, the interior of the building, the set that had been set up, as a remote-operated car drove into the building, 
all of which was very we very real very real the wall exploding the windows smashing the chairs flying all happened so fast that according to yearly smith the film actually captured her real life reaction of being terrified and screaming and just at the last minute she is pulled out of the way i believe by emilio estevez and honestly if the timing wasn't just like exactly so if it was a little off i truly believe that she would have been seriously injured and even she mentions that it was not legal and would not be legal today to film a movie like that today there was no hazard pay there was no training no safety precautions she mentions once that they were they were uh, crawling through a like uh, like a like a like a drainage ditch a septic drainage ditch and it was a real drainage ditch this wasn't built inside a set it was on the side of a highway outside what used to be a gas station <laughs> like this is just the unsanitary ness of that situation alone would probably get people sued today and to think that these things had to happen and people had to go through this just to get to the point where they have representation and 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 the 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 ground wherewithal the knowledge to be like yeah no i'm not doing that that is incredibly dangerous uh and and so yeah the the set of maximum overdrive uh really cranked out a lot of rumors and fan theories about ghost directing and crazy accidents and it was just incredibly fast dangerous set apparently and and there was another one that i found particularly interesting um again this one not 100 percent verifiable but it does make sense because the right people are in the right place and it was one that was um a bit it's claimed to have come from people that worked on the movie but it's not 100 so now especially i have just watched the first evil dead movie so it was even more interesting to me um but uh and i say just watch i've seen it before but definitely through the last time i was probably covering my eyes during the first few viewings of the evil dead so this was my first true viewing now uh i'm getting distracted the the rumor is that maximum overdrive and stephen king had a role to play in the evil dead becoming a franchise uh in so that key, uh, stephen king loved the 1981 evil dead movie and his high praise of the film is largely credited with its success again rumor i don't know if that's actually true this is what i'm reading uh now while making maximum overdrive stephen king heard that sam Raimi. Uh, Raimi was having uh, difficulty making the sequel. He needed financing. So Stephen King brought this to the attention of the producer, Dino De Laurentiis, who then helped Raimi make The Evil Dead 2 in 1987. And people then attribute that had King not been working with De Laurentiis on this movie at the time, that the Evil Dead horror franchise may never have gotten past the original 1981 Evil Dead film. And that's the kind of stuff that I love. That's interesting because that's like a group of creative, like-minded people, uh, you know, helping each other out. And one creator in horror liked, you know, so Stephen King liked something that Sam Raimi did. And then 
saw that he was in a position to maybe help him out. And I just think that's really cool. So even if it's not 100% verifiable, I like to believe that those kind of things happen and that, you know, this is why we got, uh, you know, Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness and all of these great other, you know, horror genre classics. Uh, now, the funniest bit of trivia on that IMDb page uh, and the last bit of trivia I have here was that apparently that infamous grenade launcher that I mentioned in the movie, the one that uh, Wanda June fires and it was used in a few other scenes too and in one, uh, they use it to blow up two trucks, two different trucks with two different rockets. Now, apparently somebody, some key-eyed, focused, army probably individual or weapons expert i guess uh saw this and realized that the weapon is an l a a w a light anti-tank assault weapon which is in reality a one-time use weapon and it cannot be reloaded with another round and fired again so clearly they used two or like four or five of these weapons in the like even if they were actually firing them but supposedly they would have had to use up to five of them to actually achieve what they depicted in the movie so that i found it was really funny and interesting that somebody recognized the weapon and then went and typed this as like no that's not actually possible you know your the weapon you depicted couldn't actually fire that way uh, i found that pretty funny uh, and, and on that funny note, uh, that is where I'm going to end today's episode. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, this nerd's review of Maximum Overdrive. And I hope you've enjoyed all the episodes here at The Nerd Review. So the next episode will be coming at the end of the month. I am actually leaving on vacation in a few weeks, and I am working on a larger episode, uh, probably for the Leprechaun franchise. So that or the Wishmaster franchise. I've been watching a lot of horror movies. It will be the Halloween-themed episode for the month of October. So I haven't 100% chosen which one I want to do, but I will make the decision, and it will be done for when I get back, which will be right before Halloween. Uh, so I've actually been watching a ton of horror movies in the last few weeks and i've been working on a few different episodes uh so that's what i've been up to uh and part two of the family guy video game let's play should be going up over on the youtube channel uh so lots of new content in the works and i hope everyone enjoys it when it is ready and again, I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Nerd Review, the Nerd Review of Maximum Overdrive and Stephen King's impact on literature and film. And in the realm of all things fandom, there's always something new to discover. And just remember that our passion is our superpower. And as always, you can stay connected with the nerd on social media. You can find me at the nerd, the at the nerd underscore review on Twitter or X, I guess now, and at the nerd underscore podcast over on Instagram. You can also visit the website, thenerdreview.ca, we're up here in Canada, to check out other nerdy content. Uh, you can share your thoughts and suggestions and keep the nerdy conversation alive. You can just drop me a like, you can do anything you want. Uh, I am looking forward to hearing from you. Until our next adventure together, may your dice rolls be critical 
your cosplay on point, and your geekdom thriving. Thanks for joining us, fellow nerds. Stay nerdy, stay excited, and keep your geek flag flying high. Without further ado, this is the nerd signing off. <laughs>